The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Psalm 85, to the chief musician, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Lord, you have been favorable to your land. You have brought back the captivity of Jacob. You have forgiven the iniquity of your people. You have covered all their sin, Selah. You have taken away all your wrath. You have turned from the fierceness of your anger. Restore us, O God of our salvation, and cause your anger toward us to cease. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your mercy, Lord, and grant us your salvation. I will hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people and to his saints. But let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed. Truth shall spring out of the earth, and righteousness shall look down from heaven. Yes, the Lord will give what is good, and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him, and shall make his footsteps our pathway. Picture of the incarnation there. Mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed. Truth, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Spring, shall spring out of the earth, Christ's humanity, and righteousness, the eternal God, shall look down from heaven. So it's a picture of the incarnation of Jesus Christ in that psalm there. Wonderful stuff. Let's see here. What are we doing today? I've got to turn my page. And Leviticus 4, verses 13 through 35. And before I get there, I am so happy. I can't tell you what it means to me when somebody sends me an email like this. I uh, I got another email like this this week that somebody says, I just, I'm so excited to go through your Leviticus sermons with you because it never made sense and it was tedious and, you know, I don't remember his exact words and I don't want to paraphrase too much, but when I get an email like that, in the most unpopular book maybe in the Bible, and somebody says, I really want to know this word, and I've watched from the first Leviticus sermon, we'll say the number was uh, 500,000 people watched it. That's not true, but uh, <laughs> anyway, I, it was a high number, and then the next sermon, it was 400,000 people, and then 300,000 people, and then 200,000 people, and so it's dropping off. And I said it would. I said people would stop watching this because they don't want to know about sacrifices. They don't want to, but it deals with Christ. It deals, every single word that we see deals with Christ. And not only that, it's God's word. I keep saying, I said to myself, I was praying in the back here before everybody showed up today. I was sitting in the chair and I was saying, I don't care if nobody watches the sermon, unless you tell me somehow to stop preaching out of Leviticus, I'm going to keep going through it. Because to me, it is a treasure. It is an absolute treasure. And when we get to Leviticus 16, I can't wait to get there. Anyway, I, 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 I'm so enjoying it. And I hope you are too. But that, that person just made my week. Because you see the numbers go from 500,000 down to four views. And you're like, you know, I'm not going to stop. And I got that email and I said, that just validated. If one person enjoys them, thank you. Thank you. Okay, so let's see here. We're in uh, chapter 4, starting in verse 13. We're going to finish the chapter today. Last week, remember, was the 
uh, sin of the high priest. Okay, now we're starting into lesser categories. Verse 13. Now, if the whole congregation of Israel sins unintentionally, and the thing is hidden from the eyes of the assembly, and they have done something against any of the commandments of the Lord in anything which should not be done and are guilty, when the sin which they have committed becomes known, then the assembly shall offer a young bull for the sin and bring it before the tabernacle of meeting. And the elders of the congregation shall lay their hands on the head of the bull before the Lord. Then the bull shall be killed before the Lord. The anointed priest shall bring some of the bull's blood to the tabernacle of meeting. Then the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle it seven times before the Lord in front of the veil. And he shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar, which is before the Lord, which is in the tabernacle of meeting. And he shall pour the remaining blood at the base of the altar of burnt offering, which is at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. He shall take all the fat from it and burn it on the altar. And he shall do with the bull as he did with the bull as a sin offering. Thus he shall do with it. So the priest shall make atonement for them and it shall be forgiven them. Then he shall carry the bull outside the camp and burn it as he burned the first bull. It is a sin offering for the assembly. Verse 22, when a ruler has sinned and done something unintentionally against any of the commandments of the Lord his God in anything which should not be done and is guilty, or if his sin which he has committed comes to his knowledge, he shall bring as his offering a kid of the goats, a male without blemish, and he shall lay his hand on the head of the goat and kill it at the place where they kill the burnt offering before the Lord. It is a sin offering. The priest shall take some of the blood of the sin offering with his finger, put it on the horns of the altar of burnt offering, and pour its blood at the base of the altar of burnt offering. Then he shall burn all its fat on the altar like the fat of the sacrifice of the peace offering. So the priest shall make atonement for him concerning his sin, and it shall be forgiven him. Verse 27. If any one of the common people sins unintentionally by doing something against any of the commandments of the Lord in anything which ought not to be done and is guilty, or if his sin which he has committed comes to his knowledge, then he shall bring as his offering a kid of the goats, a female without blemish for his sin which he has committed. Then he shall lay his hand on the head of the sin offering and kill the sin offering at the place of the burnt offering. Then the priest shall take some of its blood with his finger and put it on the horns of the altar of burnt offering and pour all the remaining blood at the base of the altar. He shall remove all its fat as fat is removed from the sacrifice of the peace offering. Then the priest shall burn it on the altar for a sweet aroma to the Lord. So the priest shall make atonement for him and it shall be forgiven him. Verse 32, if he brings a lamb as his sin offering, he shall bring a female without blemish. Then he shall lay his hand on the head of the sin offering and kill it as a sin offering at the place where they killed the burn offering. The priest shall take some of the blood of the sin offering with his finger, put it on the horns of the altar of burnt offering, and pour all the remaining blood at the base of the altar. He shall remove all its fat as the fat of the lamb is removed from the sacrifice of the peace offering. Then the priest shall burn it on the altar according to the offerings made by fire to the Lord. So the priest shall make atonement for his sin that he has committed and it shall be forgiven him. Now, while I'm polishing my glasses, which I couldn't see a thing as I was reading, um, Matt, if you would, before you leave, my wife has a book where people can sign that they came to visit, and it's back there, and I completely forgot that, and she'll, she'll destroy me if I don't have people sign that. So sign that you were here, okay? And that way we just have it as a record, because she, she's that type of person. She likes records and logs, and, you know, me, I'm, how's it going? And that's about it, but... <laughs> Okay, so uh, let's see here. Leviticus four thirteen through 35. It's the sin offering, part two. 
For as long as 3,000 years, there has been in India what we would call the caste system. The word is actually derived from the Portuguese word casta, which means race or breed or lineage and something like that. That was derived from an earlier concept meaning pure or unmixed. The actual words used to describe the caste system are varna and jeti. Varna means color and it is used as a framework for grouping people into classes. JT means birth. This is considered to have its basis in religion. In the end, this is not uncommon in the world. Religion often finds ways of oppressing people. In the case of the Indian castes, there are five major groups. At the top are the Brahmins, and at the bottom are the Dalits. None of the castes are to intermarry, but the poor Dalits, or untouchables, aren't even to be spoken to or looked at for the most part. As a caste, they are considered so low that they aren't even considered a caste. They were excluded from the fourfold Varna system and simply formed into the unmentionable fifth Varna. And so they are a caste that isn't a caste. Although there are high-ranking and low-ranking people within the Hebrew society, there is the underlying truth that all humans are created in God's image and are of equal worth. This may not always be the idea which comes forth out of many Jewish sects today. Some of the uh, religious sects look at the Gentile world as far below them. They are the righteous and favored. The Gentiles are the dogs. Such is the life for those who reject the truths of the Bible or who selectively pick and choose certain verses to merge with a presupposition about other people. Even in Christianity, there have been those who have used the scriptures to justify the notion that one group of people is less valuable than another. Slavery, subjugation of other people groups, and a diminishing of the value of life grows naturally out of a liberal view on humanity. We saw that very clearly in our prophecy update today. However, the more biblically fundamental a person is, and the more conservative they are in their life, political life, and work ethic, the more a true sense for human life is realized. The notion of abortion becomes abhorrent, the concept of euthanasia is seen for the evil that it truly is, and the equality of all men is brought into its highest place. Why is this? It is because the ground is level at the foot of the cross. There is but one offering by which all must come to God, to God the Father. The richest person can offer no more, and the poorest person can come with no less. The cross is, above all, the great equalizer. No wonder the lower castes in India love the message of the gospel, and the higher classes shout to have it banned. The Old Testament focuses almost solely on the Hebrew people and their relationship with their God, but with a few exceptions. The outside nations did their own thing, and they were, for the most part, regarded in a negative light. But the value of the individual, whether Hebrew or Gentile, is actually quite prominently on display. However, if we were to just look at the dealings within the Hebrew society and nowhere else, we would note that there is no such thing as a caste system. There were Hebrew slaves, but they became that way for a reason, and they were to be given their freedom after very short intervals of time or if certain other occasions required it by law. There were also nobles within the society, but they were bound under the exact same laws as everyone else. In the end, one cannot find a system where the poor or certain other groups were intentionally kept subjugated by the framework for the society, which is the law of Moses. 
In fact, just the opposite is true. Our text verse today comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It's verses 20 and 21. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The sin offerings of Israel highlight the fact that all were bound under the law. All had to come to God for forgiveness when they transgressed the law, and all were given equal forgiveness when they came forward for it. But within the sin offerings, there are clues that God actually exalted the lowly. The terminology used in the verses today highlights the offerings of the poor people in a way that is not highlighted for the high priest or the ruler who sinned. These things need to be highlighted by us because they show that God looks on the poor and the lowly and he regards them. He doesn't look more favorably on some and less on others just because of their looks or the size of their pocketbook or the type of car they drive. Instead, he looks on the heart and he determines the value of the person. As I said, at the foot of the cross, the ground is level. What a wonderful God to allow all who will come to simply come. If you have bad breath because you can't afford to go to the dentist, or if you make minimum wage and live with your parents because there's no other place that you can afford, that in no way means that you are lacking worth in God's sight. If you have called on Christ, you are well-loved and highly favored. Paul writes about that a lot in the New Testament. We'll get there soon enough, but it's evident even here in the Old. Yes, these things are all to be found in his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. I have three thoughts for you today. The first is the sin of the congregation. It's verses 13 through 21. Verse 13, now if the whole congregation of Israel sins unintentionally, as we saw in the previous sermon, the words of verse 3, which say, if a person sins, is speaking of each of the categories that will then be listed. The first was sin of the high priest. The next category is now given, which deals with the entire congregation. The categories are following a descending ladder of importance. If the high priest were to sin, there could be no mediation for anyone else until his sin was atoned for. That is why his category was first. Now the sin of the entire congregation is given. As a unified whole, atonement must be made before the congregation can have a proper relationship with the Lord once again. An example of corporate guilt is that of the sin of Achan, or in English we say Achan, in Joshua chapter 7. One person transgressed the command of the Lord, but it brought the guilt on the entire congregation. Until that sin was dealt with, the entire congregation was considered as guilty. This type of corporate sin is seen again in 1 Samuel chapter 14, when the people collectively slaughtered and ate meat, which still contained blood in it. This is the type of sin which is being referred to here. The word which is translated as unintentionally is shagah. This is the first of 21 times it's going to be seen in the uh, Bible. It means to cause to go astray or to make wander. It, in essence, is the committing of sin through ignorance. For example, in Proverbs, it is used of the person being led astray, not the one doing the leading. Here's what it says in Proverbs 28. Whoever causes the upright to go astray, that word shagah, in an evil way, he himself will fall into his own pit, but the blameless will inherit good. There would be two kinds of unintentional sin which would qualify here. 
The first would be where attention is called to the sinfulness of an act, and then that sin is acknowledged. The second would be where a sinful act is not understood to be sinful until the law is explained. Once the explanation is given and the deed was realized as sinful, a sin offering would be needed. Either way, what was wrong was revealed after being hidden. Verse 13 continues, And the thing is hidden from the eyes of the assembly, and they have done something against any of the commandments of the Lord in anything which should not be done and are guilty. These words show the fundamental truth that ignorance before the law is no excuse. The congregation has violated a commandment, and they bear guilt because of it. In 2 Samuel 21, we will see that when Saul violated the covenant which was made between Israel and the Gibeonites, there was a famine in the land because of it. David had to inquire of the Lord to find out why the famine persisted. Such examples show that the congregation was considered guilty before the Lord because a violation of a covenant between men is still a violation of the Lord's word because vows are to be held sacred. Here, two new words are introduced into the Bible. The first is alam. It's translated as hidden. It means blind or to hide self or a secret thing. It comes from a root meaning to veil from sight. Solomon uses it in Ecclesiastes as a thing hidden from sight. Here's what he says. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing. That word alam, whether good or evil. The second new word translated here as and are guilty is asham. This word is variously translated, having come from a root, which means to be guilty. Thus, by implication, it can mean to be punished or even to perish. Ezekiel, speaking of the sins of Jerusalem, uses the word to identify their guilt. He says, you have become guilty, asham, by the blood which you have shed and have defiled yourselves with the idols which you have made. You have caused your days to draw near and have come to the end of your years. Therefore, I have made you a reproach to the nations and a mockery to all countries. And so with these two new words, we see that even with the sin that was hidden from the people's knowledge, they were still considered guilty. That leads us to our next verse, verse 14. When the sin which they have committed becomes known, then the assembly shall offer a young bull for the sin and bring it before the tabernacle of meeting. Other than the Day of Atonement, there would be no reason for an offering for sin when there was no idea that the congregation had sinned. However, should the sin become known, an offering would then be required. What is implied is that if one was not made after the guilt was realized, the sin would go from being unintentional to being intentional. To avoid this, the offering had to be made. In this case, the same offering as for that of the high priest of verse 4 would be required a young bull. Because the whole congregation was guilty, it included the high priest. Therefore, in type and picture, there needed to be the same sin offering as there was for just the priest. As we saw, the bull points to Christ. I explained that very clearly last week. Without a sin offering for the priest who is included in this transgression, then there would be no one to mediate between the people and God. Having said this, we read the following in Numbers chapter 15, verse 24. People say, oh, there's a contradiction in the Bible. Here's what it says. Then it will be if it is unintentionally committed without the knowledge of the congregation that the whole congregation, this is a sin where the whole congregation is involved, shall offer one young bull as a burnt offering, a sweet aroma to the Lord with its grain offering and its drink offering according to the ordinance, and one kid of the goats as a sin offering. 
Here in Leviticus, a bull is the stated requirement, but in Numbers, the sin offering is to be a goat. The difference is believed by some to be that Numbers is speaking of a sin of omission concerning a ceremonial duty rather than a violation of a commandment. However, it never says this. What seems more likely is that the sin offering mentioned in Numbers chapter 15 is speaking of that which is detailed for the sin of the congregation on the Day of Atonement. The priest offered a bull for his sins during the year, and then he offered a goat for the sins of the people. If, however, the sin is recognized during the year before the Day of Atonement and which involved the whole congregation, then a bull was to be used for all of the people, including the high priest. And, as a point of clarification, this verse says that the assembly shall offer the bull. The intent is not that every person in the congregation would have to lay their hands on the animal. That would mean two million people would have to come forward. Rather, it is an idiomatic expression that the bull will be offered on behalf of the assembly. Whether the leaders of the tribes or certain designated people performed the ritual, they stood on behalf of the entire assembly. This becomes more evident with the next words, verse 15. And the elders of the congregation shall lay their hands on the head of the bull before the Lord. Then the bull shall be killed before the Lord. The New King James Version has done a great job of terminology in these three verses. Two different words are used for congregation and assembly in the Hebrew. As two different words are used, it makes sense to distinguish them in the English as well. They are both very close in meaning, but the Lord decided to use them both. So hats off to the New King James Version for being precise, because the older King James is not precise. It just states the same word twice. There is the assembly, which is here noted as being a congregation led by these elders. It is they who are designated to lay their hands upon the head of the bull in the presence of the Lord. Thus they are signifying the transfer of the sin from the entire congregation through them to the bull. As the high priest shared in the guilt of the congregation, and as he belonged to a tribe of Israel, then we can infer that either he or a designated leader of Levi would stand and confess the sin of the entire tribe. Once this was done, the bull was then to be slaughtered. Again, as always, there is no remission of sin without the shedding of blood. An innocent must die in the place of the guilty. Think of Jesus. He had to die or we would forever bear guilt and be separated from God. Thank God for Jesus Christ. Verse 16, the anointed priest shall bring some of the bull's blood to the tabernacle of meeting. This verse corresponds to verse 5, and the wording is very similar in the Hebrew. The same procedures were to be followed because the matter involved the mediator who stood between the people and the Lord. As he was to come into the holy place each day, he would be unqualified to do so unless his sin, which was united to the whole congregation, was dealt with first. His duties would be ineffective, and therefore there would be no forgiveness for himself or the people that he represented. Verse 17, Then the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle it seven times before the Lord in front of the veil. Again, the words are very similar to, but not exactly the same as those in verse 6 from last week. As with verse 6, every single detail points to Christ. So if you missed that sermon, you have your assignment for this evening. Go back and watch it so you understand how it points to Christ in this sermon. Just as God created in six days and rested on the seventh, being satisfied with his accomplished work, so the blood is sprinkled until there is satisfaction for the sins committed. This picture of the work of Christ is realized in the final, the seventh sprinkling. In all ways, whether it is a Sabbath day observance or a full cleansing from sin, 
Each instance of Christ's work shows completion for the believer. Verse 18, And he shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar, which is before the Lord, which is in the tabernacle of meeting, and he shall pour the remaining blood at the base of the altar of burnt offering, which is at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Once again, this verse is similar to verse 4, 7. It says essentially the same thing, just restructuring the words a little bit. However, the same procedures are followed for that sin offering. Verse 19, He shall take all the fat from it and burn it on the altar. This verse is a condensed form of verses 4, 8 through 10. What was more exactingly described then is now simplified. However, it carries the same meaning. Verse 20, And he shall do with the bull as he did with the bull as a sin offering. Thus he shall do with it. So the priest shall make atonement for them, and it shall be forgiven them. The same result of atoning for the high priest sins of the earlier verses will be the result for the entire congregation in these verses. The sin of the high priest, which was included in the sin of the congregation, was forgiven. And thus his mediation on behalf of the people is to be accepted as well. The sin debt was removed in the death of the bull and its associated rituals. Verse 21, then he shall carry the bull outside the camp and burn it as he burned the first bull. This verse corresponds to verse 12. As was done with the bull for the high priest's sin, so it is done with the bull for the sin of the congregation. Once again, if you didn't see that sermon last week, it all pointed to Christ, even being quoted directly out of Hebrews, how it points to Christ. Verse 21 continues, it is a sin offering for the assembly. The sin offering did not undo the sin, and any wrong which was done was left unchanged, but the guilt for the sin was removed. The sin was taken from his sight so that the people stood before him now without fault. A New Testament equivalent of this corporate sin is found in Acts chapter 3. Here's what it says from Peter's words to the people of Israel. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But you denied the Holy One and the just and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and killed the prince of life, whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. And his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through him has given him with this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. Yet now, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance, as did also your rulers." The people of Israel crucified Christ in ignorance, and thus they were guilty. However, as he is the final sacrifice for the sins of the people, which these only look forward to, then their collective guilt remains. One must go outside the camp to Christ, just as the carcass of the bull was carried outside the camp. The collective guilt of Israel remains to this day until they collectively call out to him as he said, you know, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who stone the prophets. And uh, uh, I'm going to misquote it, but he says, how I've longed to gather you as a hen gathers its chicks under its wings, but you were not willing. I say to you, until you say, Baruch haba Bashem Adonai, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I'm not coming back to you. Now that's a misquote, but that's basically what he said. Their guilt remains. This will become abundantly evident when we get to Leviticus 16. Stay tuned for really amazing details. We have sinned, and now we realize what we have done. We have rejected God's offer, the gift he sent to us. We have crucified our Lord, God's perfect son. Together, we have rejected the Lord Jesus. But we did it in ignorance, and so there is hope. 
For us, there is an offering for sin. It is through his blood, atonement unlimited in scope. Through him, peace is restored and there can be fellowship again. Thank God for his tender mercies upon us. Thank God for this marvelous thing he has done. Through the cross of Calvary and the death of Jesus, we are whole once again and the victory is won. Our second thought today is the sin of the ruler. It's verses 22 through 26. Verse 22, when a ruler has sinned and done something unintentionally against any of the commandments of the Lord his God in anything which should not be done and is guilty. The next category to be specified is the nasi or ruler. It's a common word which is found in the Bible. It's translated as prince, chief, captain, ruler, governor, all kinds of different words. The word is derived from nasa, which means to rise or to lift. Thus, it is one lifted up or exalted. What this particular verse is referring to, though, is debated. Some are saying that it's speaking of a main ruler of Israel, like the judge of Israel or the king of Israel. Others saying it's referring to anyone placed above others as a leader of a tribe. However, if we look at the other sin offerings, we may come to the correct conclusion. In verse 4-2, 4-3, 4-13, and 4-27, at the beginning of each category, it uses the term Lord, meaning Yehovah. However, in this verse only, it says Yehovah Elohav, or the Lord his God. Thus, it appears to be speaking of a ruler who is appointed directly by God. In Numbers chapter 1, the leaders of each tribe were designated by name. Probably, this sacrifice would include them. Moses was specifically called, and so this would probably refer to him. Judges were called by God, and so it would seem to refer to them. The kingly line was called by God, and so it would likely refer to them. It would not be right to be dogmatic here, but the specific term seems to speak out to the one who was specifically called by God and then those who followed after them in that same line. Whatever the true meaning, when this person sinned unintentionally before the Lord his God, he became guilty. Verse 23, or if his sin which he has committed comes to his knowledge. This is all one thought, the last verse in this verse, and so it should read, and, if, or also but not or. The word in Hebrew is o, which usually is translated as or, and so most translations say or, but because it's one continuous thought, it indicates the result of what he has learned. He committed a sin, and that at some point he became aware of it. Upon realizing the error, he must make atonement for that sin. Verse 23 continues, he shall bring as his offering a kid of the goats. The animal here is not a bull, but rather a goat. But more specifically, it is sayir izim, or a hairy goat. The word sayir was first used to describe Esau, the hairy son of Isaac. To understand the significance of this offering, one must understand the significance of hair in the Bible. It denotes awareness. It denotes awareness, but more specifically, it denotes an awareness of sin. Esau was used as a picture of Adam, who gained a conscience at the time of the fall. Thus, the hairy goat is used as a symbol of the consciousness of sin. The bull pictured Christ the high priest. Likewise, it pictured Christ the leader of the congregation to whom the congregation is united. Here, the goat pictures Christ who came to die for the awareness of sin in fallen man. He is the sin offering for all who acknowledge their sin. Because they are conscious of it, in this case, it is the ruler of the people who is accountable to God for his sin. Verse 23 continues, a male without blemish. 
Only a perfect specimen could be sacrificed in place of the sin of the ruler. Again, it looks to Christ who, as Peter notes, was without spot or blemish. He was the perfect sacrifice for the sins committed by one appointed by God because he too was appointed by God but was without sin of his own. Verse 24, And he shall lay his hand on the head of the goat. As always, this signifies that the guilty is requesting mercy because an innocent is being offered in place of the offender. It looks to Christ, our perfect substitute, dying in our place. Verse 24 continues, And kill it at the place where they kill the burnt offering before the Lord. This is on the north side of the altar, corresponding to the north part of Jerusalem where Christ died in fulfillment of the prophetic picture which we're given here. As in type, so in antitype. Verse 24 continues, it is a sin offering. The hairy goat took the place of the man who had become conscious of his sin. The conscious Christ takes place of those who appointed by God to lead and who became conscious of their sin requesting God's mercy and that they be pardoned through Christ who removes the guilt from them. Verse 25, the priest shall take some of the blood of the sin offering with his finger, put it on the horns of the altar of burnt offering and pour its blood at the base of the altar of burnt offering. Here the blood does not need to be carried into the holy place and handled as it was for either the high priest or the whole congregation. This is because in fulfillment of the type, Christ He died, thus becoming our high priest. He is able to purify his people constantly, having no sin of his own to restrict him from entering into the Lord's presence. The horns of the altar denote the presence and power of God. As there are four pointing out in all four directions, they denote the power of God in Christ, which is realized to the four corners of the earth. His sacrifice is sufficient to forgive any and all who come to him. His omnipresence and his omnipotence are thus symbolized in these horns. Verse 26, And he shall burn all its fat on the altar, like the fat of the sacrifice of the peace offering. As we saw, and without repeating all of the details, the fat looked forward to Christ and his work. Every single piece of fat specifically pointed to some part of Christ's ministry. It was to be burned as incense upon the altar to be a sweet fragrance to God. Such is the atonement of man's sins through the work of Christ for him. We are at verse 26, and we have already seen about six jillion pictures of Christ. Every aspect of these seemingly mundane and outdated rituals points directly to our wonderful Savior, who has done all, all of the work necessary for us to be reconciled to God. Verse 26 continues, So the priest shall make atonement for him concerning his sin. As I just noted, Christ is our high priest. As the work of Christ is the fulfillment of what was needed for the priests, they can now be used to picture his work. He is the one to make atonement for us. As you can see, each subsequent offering follows logically after the one which precedes it, one step at a time. The entire process is given to show us the totality of what Christ has done for us. Verse 26 continues, and it shall be forgiven him. This forgiveness is judicial, meaning that it is legally forgiven. Thus, it is forgiven from a civil standpoint within the community, and it is also forgiven in an actual manner as well. This means that it is really and forever forgiven based on faith in the Messiah to come. Faith, however, is the key. The prophets of Israel speak of the useless nature of offerings which were made without true repentance for what the offerings signified. What kind of a ruler have I been? I am supposed to be an example for those under me. And yet I have transgressed the command. Am I done in? My sin is exposed. 
I have become guilty. But I know God's law offers mercy for what I have done. With an offering at the altar, I can find release. I confess my sin against God, against the Holy One, and in my offering, the enmity will cease. Thank God for the cross of Calvary where my sin is put away. Thank God for the blood shed there for me. And calling out for mercy shines the light of a new day. Such glorious forgiveness streaming from that cross on Calvary. And as we're talking about the ruler who is forgiven by the sins of Christ, let's stop and let's do something. Just dawned on me. This wasn't prepared, but let's pray for our ruler. Heavenly Father, we have a ruler in Washington right now who is openly avowed you. And we don't know if he is actually saved by the blood of Jesus Christ or not. There is a lot of speculation that he made that commitment. But he is acknowledging that you, God, are in charge of this nation. And to you, we owe our allegiance. And I would pray that you would guide him, that you would sustain him, that you would keep him from the forces of wickedness, that Christ would be his true sin offering, and that all of his sins would be cast as far as the east is from the west, and that our president would continue to do great things for this nation, bringing it to a a state of rightness and morality once again. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our third thought today is the sins of the common people. It's verses 27 through 35. Verse 27, if any one of the common people sins unintentionally by doing something against any of the commandments of the Lord in anything which ought not to be done and is guilty. When I lived in Malaysia, they had a term for the indigenous people there, Bumiputra, or sons of the soil. This was a term brought in from the Sanskrit word Bumiputra, Bumi meaning earth or land, and Putra meaning sun. The Malay people adopted this term in the 1970s to refer to themselves because they lived there all along. However, the Chinese moved in, and like Chinese do, they worked hard and they procreated quickly. They became wealthy, prosperous, and numerous. The Malays lived a little less aggressively. Nap time is more important than work time, and eating durian is preferable to racing off to the tin mines. Eventually, the Malays, who were still in the majority, voted themselves in many benefits at the expense of the harder-working Chinese. Had they not done this, they would never get nice cars and houses. Working for stuff like that is so much more difficult than having someone else do it for you. In America, you would lump them under the larger term, Democrat. Instead of eating durian, most Democrats prefer Starbucks, but the attitude is the same. This has nothing to do with sin offerings mentioned here, though. Except that the fourth category of the sin offering is that of the Am Ha'aretz, or people of the land. Just like Bumiputra, you have the Am Am Ha'aretz. Excuse me, I had to inhale there. It's a term which indicates all of the common people. Here, though, the words Ve'im Nefesh Ahat are used. And if soul one. In other words, rather than a corporate sin, as was seen in verses 13 through 21... This is speaking of the sin of an individual, but not one of the other two categories of the high priest or the ruler. This group of individuals will finish up the sin offering requirements. If any one person so designated was to commit an unintentional sin, as is specified, they became guilty. Verse 28, or if his sin which he has committed comes to his knowledge. Again, as in verse 23, rather than being a contrasting word or, this should be a word of explanation. And he has sinned, and now the sin has come to his attention. When this is the case, verse 28 continues, Then he shall bring as his offering a kid of the goats, 
a female without blemish for his sin, which he has committed. The offering here, instead of being a sayir or a male hairy goat, is to be a seirah or female hairy goat. Now, does that mean anything to you? Would you have ever questioned that in your life? Because I was sitting with somebody in this congregation two nights ago named Mabel. I won't name her by name, though, because I don't want to embarrass her. But she said, I'm reading that passage in Leviticus right now, and I've got some questions for you. And she asked about the seven sprinklings, which I mentioned last week, and we talked about again today. And then she said, I want to know why you have a male hairy goat here, but a female hairy goat there. And I said, well, then you show up in church on Sunday morning and you'll find out, (laughs) won't you? And I did. I told her anyway. But it was marvelous. She's actually questioning the Bible as she's going through it, which is what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to ask the text questions and then think, why would God do this? The reason for the change is the same as the other offerings. The female was of less value, and therefore it was more affordable for the common people. As always, the Lord is looking out for the people, attending them in the most merciful way. However, the symbolism is the same. The hairy goat is a symbol of the awareness of sin. Verse 29, And he shall lay his hand on the head of the sin offering and kill the sin offering at the place of the burnt offering. These words very closely correspond to those of verse 24, with just a few small changes in the wording. The acknowledgement of sin is made, the hands are placed, and the animal is slaughtered at the north side of the altar. How could Christ do this for us? That's what I'm asking myself when I'm going through these things, because it's all picturing him. And everything that happened to these animals happened to him, but in a thousandfold, in the brutality. When these animals were slaughtered, they used the sharpest knife you could imagine. And it is said, that they still do this to this day, when they make kosher meat, that the animal feels nothing. It simply dies like you're going to sleep. There's no pain in these animals at all. It's a very merciful way of dying, unlike the way we process meat non-kosher. I don't even want to talk about it. Very brutal. Verse uh, 30, Then the priest shall take some of its blood with his finger, put it on the horns of the altar of burnt offering, and pour all the remaining blood at the base of the altar. This verse very closely corresponds to verse 25. There is a small change in the wording, but the intent is essentially the same. Every type and picture of Christ is seen for the ruler, is seen again here for the people of the land, the common folk. Verse 31, he shall remove all its fat, as fat is removed from the sacrifice of the peace offering, and the priest shall burn it on the altar for a sweet aroma to the Lord. Just as with the previous offering, so it is with this one. The fat which was detailed there is removed from this one also, and it is burnt as incense to the Lord. However, unlike the offering for the high priest, for the congregation as a whole, or for the ruler, the words, for a sweet aroma to the Lord, are added. Jim shaking his head. He caught on to that. Although the particular word katar, or that of burning like incense, was used in all of them, only the sin offering includes the extra words of favor. Each detail is repeated and even expanded on to show that the sin of the lowly person is forgiven just as fully and just as graciously as it is for the greatest of all. In fact, the forgiveness of the lowly person is actually exalted in the use of this terminology. Verse 31 continues, So the priest shall make atonement for him, and it shall be forgiven him. As it was for Israel with a fallible high priest, so it is for those in the church with a perfect and eternal high priest. The common folk are provided the same atonement and they receive the same forgiveness. Verse 32, if he brings a lamb as a sin offering, 
he shall bring a female without blemish. As an additional option for the common folk, a kebes, or lamb, could be brought instead of the hairy goat. The word kebes is used more than 105 times, and yet all but less than 20 are used in connection with the sacrifices. The word comes from a root which means to dominate. It thus symbolizes Christ's domination over sin. And so this offering is an acceptable one for this reason. In this lamb, we hear the words of John the Baptist crying out, don't we? Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This, like all other sacrifices, was to be tamim or without blemish. Verse 33, then he shall lay his hand on the head of the sin offering and kill it as a sin offering at the place where they kill the burnt offering. These words are very close to those of verse 29, all pointing to Christ, all calling us to remember his marvelous deeds, which for 1,500 years were typified day in and day out at the sanctuary where the people came to confess and be restored to a right standing with the Lord. Verse 34, the priest shall take some of the blood of the sin offering with his finger, put it on the horns of the altar of burnt offering, and pour all the remaining blood at the base of the altar. These words are practically identical to those of verse 30, but with only a couple small changes. Exactly the same ritual is performed here as with that of the female goat, and the ritual points ahead in time to the cross of Calvary and the pure and perfect atonement which is found in Christ Jesus our Lord. Verse 35 finishes us today with, He shall remove all of its fat, as the fat of the lamb is removed from the sacrifice of the peace offering. Then the priest shall burn it on the altar according to the offerings made by fire to the Lord. So the priest shall make atonement for his sin that he has committed, and it shall be forgiven him. These words closely correspond to those of verse 31, telling us the same thing once again. The only major difference here is that a lamb can be selected instead of a goat. Both animals picture Christ in their own way, and both are ultimately fulfilled in his one time and for all time sin offering for the common people. How blessed we are to be the recipients of such marvelous wonder. Though I've tied each and every offering into that of Christ's offering, it should be noted that the Greek word used by Paul in 1 Corinthians 5 verse 21, which was our text verse for the day, is hamartion, a sin offering. That same word was used by the Greek translators of the Old Testament about 250 years before the coming of Christ more than 80 times for the Hebrew word chata'ah, or sin. It is then translated into the English as sin offering. The Lord has spent an enormous amount of time in man's history here on earth trying to wake us up to the fact that it is all about Jesus Christ. Every word, not just from a biased view by myself or an aberrant group of Jesus nut scholars, but every word from countless texts and commentaries which span the ages shows us that Jesus Christ is the sole person that God wants us to focus on. Let's do our best to not get caught up in fawning over sports stars, eloquent orators, fancy musicians, or even have crazy ideas about figures like Mary, Krishna, Muhammad, or anyone else. Instead, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, let us fix our attention on his word, and let us secret away in our hearts God's love for all of us, all prominently on display in the cross of Calvary. May our one boast be in the cross of Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to us and we to the world. Live your life with that high and noble banner ever before you, 
Jesus Christ is our sin offering. He is the perfect and unstained Lamb of God who truly and forever takes away the sin of the world. Praise God for Jesus Christ, our Lord. And really quickly, as I do each week, if you haven't called on Jesus, you have no sin offering before God. It is ineffective whatever you're doing. If you're trying to work your way to heaven, oh, I do good things, or I'm doing something nice for my mom at 5 o'clock today, God doesn't care one little bit about that. He does care that you take care of your mom. That's for certain. But he doesn't care about it in regards to your salvation. There's nothing that you can do, nothing to merit God's favor. You have already sinned, and you're already dead in sin because of your first father, and you are on your way to the lake of fire. The only thing you can do is build a diving board to get there quicker. That's the only thing you can do. I'm going to screw my life up so badly, and I'm going to build a diving board so that I can make a grand entrance into the lake of fire. But you can't earn your way to heaven. But God has done it for you. He gave his sin on the cross of Calvary so that you could be reconciled to your heavenly father. His own life, his own life is that sin offering. And if you simply say, I believe, I believe that it is effectual to take away my sin and to restore me to God. And if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, proving that he had no sin of his own, you will be saved. End of story. No works added. You are saved and it cannot be taken away. Don't listen to anybody who tells you otherwise. It is done. You're sealed with the Holy Spirit and God never makes a mistake. He will never take away what he has given you. Please do it today. Call on Jesus. Our closing verse comes from Ephesians chapter 5. It's verses 1 and 2. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. Next week is Leviticus 5. It's verses 1 through 19, the whole chapter, something to make your heart sing. It's entitled, The Trespass Offering. That'll be your seventh Leviticus sermon, okay? The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. Even if you have a lifetime of sin heaped up behind you, he can wash it away and he can purify you completely and holy. So follow him and trust him and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. Okay? Our poem today, it's a little long, but that's okay because uh, I give you the verses at the beginning. I give you all the verses during the sermon and then I give them to you at the end and that way you remember better and you also get a little poem out of it, okay? This is called Christ Our Sin Offering. Now if the whole congregation of Israel sins unintentionally and the thing is hidden from the eyes of the assembly and they have done something against any of the commandments of the Lord in anything which should not be done and are guilty according to his word, when the sin which they have committed becomes known, then the assembly shall offer a young bull for the sin and bring it before the tabernacle of meeting. So shall it be. And the elders of the congregation shall lay their hands on the head of the bull before the Lord. Then the bull shall be killed before the Lord. This according to my word. The anointed priest shall bring some of the bull's blood into the tabernacle of meeting. Then the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle it seven times before the Lord in front of the veil. So he shall do according to this word. And he shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar, which is before the Lord, which is in the tabernacle of meeting. In this he shall not falter. And he shall pour the remaining blood at the base of the altar of burnt offering, which is at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Such shall be the appropriate proffering. He shall take all the fat from it and burn it on the altar. And he shall do with the bull as he did with the bull as a sin offering. In this he must not falter. Thus 
he shall do with it, to this he shall commit. So the priest shall for them atonement make, and it shall be forgiven them for their sake. Then he shall carry the bull outside the camp and burn it as he burnt the first bull. It is a sin offering for the assembly, yes, for the assembly as a whole. When a ruler has sinned and done anything unintentionally against any of the commandments of the Lord his God in anything which should not be done and is guilty, or if his sin which he has committed comes to his knowledge, so shall he do. He shall bring as his offering a kid of the goats, a male without blemish, as I am instructing you. And he shall lay his hand on the head of the goat, which is his proffering, and kill it at the place where the burnt offering is killed. Before the Lord, it is a sin offering. The priest shall take some of the blood of the sin offering with his finger, such is the case. Put it on the horns of the altar of burnt offering, and pour its blood at the altar of burnt offering's base. And he shall burn all its fat on the altar, like the fat of the sacrifice of the peace offering. So the priest shall make atonement for him, and it shall be forgiven him, his sin concerning. If any one of the common people sins unintentionally by doing something against any of the commandments of the Lord, which ought not to be done, and is guilty in anything, or if his sin which he has committed comes to his knowledge, so it is now admitted. Then he shall, as his offering, a kid of the goats bring. A female without blemish, so shall it be, for his sin which he has committed against me. And he shall his hand on the head of the sin offering lay, and kill the sin offering at the place of the burnt offering, as to you I now say. Then the priest shall take some of its blood with his finger. Let this be the case. Put it on the horns of the altar burnt offering, and pour all the remaining blood at the altar's base. He shall remove all its fat. As fat is removed from the sacrifice of the peace offering, and the priest shall burn it on the altar for a sweet aroma to the Lord, an acceptable proffering. So the priest shall for him make atonement, and it shall be forgiven him without postponement. If he brings a lamb as a sin offering, he shall a female without blemish bring. Then he shall lay his hand on the head of the sin offering and kill it as a sin offering, such is the proffering at the place where they kill the burnt offering. The priest shall take some of the blood of the sin offering with his finger. In this he shall not falter. Put it on the horns of the altar of burnt offering and pour all the remaining blood at the base of the altar. He shall remove all its fat as the fat of the lamb is removed from the sacrifice of the peace offering. This instruction is what I have approved. Then the priest shall burn it on the altar according to the offerings made by fire to the Lord. So the priest shall make atonement for his sin that he has committed and it shall be forgiven him according to this word. Our Lord Jesus died outside the walls of the city. He died there for the sins of all men on that day. God demonstrated his merciful pity. And in that crucified body, God has opened the way. We now can come home to him once again. We are reconciled through what he alone has done. May we be willing to share this marvel with all men that God has given us new life through his son. Praises to God who has done this most marvelous thing for us. All praises to God through our glorious Lord Jesus. Hallelujah and amen. amen. Heavenly Father, how wonderful your word is. The, the absolute wonderful intricacy and the detail which you've shown us and the favor that you've shown even the poorest common person of the land, that there is no favoritism with you. All must come equally to the foot of the cross of Calvary. Lord, we have uh, Mike who is, uh, had to leave early. His back is bothering him really badly. We pray for him. Pray that he will be sustained and uh, his body will be brought back to a place of health and restoration. We've got uh, the Bridges and Darlene and Craig and Arlena who are leaving this coming week. 
pray for safe travels for them and that they would be uh, happy up north in their cool weather as we sit down here sweltering. And uh, we would pray that you would give us relief from the heat at times during the summer. And, uh, but we know that they'll be having a good time, and we ask that you take care of them and meet their needs according to your wisdom. And Lord, uh, we pray for David, who does not know you and who is a, a, a painful spot on the heart of one of the people that uh, we know. And we would pray that he would be uh, brought to a state of coming to Jesus instead of listening to the uh, doctrines of men and the false teachings of the church that he's in, that he would uh, open his eyes and his heart to the truth of Scripture which tells us that it is Jesus and Jesus alone. Nobody, no church has the right to make up ordinances and decide your word. Only you, only you have the decision and the authority over it. So help us to be obedient to it and not get pulled into the craziness that's going on in all of these churches and denominations around the world, but to stand fast on what you have decreed because you are God. Lord, we thank you for the blessings of this life. We thank you for the chance to meet at the uh, Lord's table, and we commit this uh, time to you, and we do it in his beautiful name. Amen. Amen.